Can Ohio's unemployment computer be screwed up yet again? That's the first story on this episode of This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Jane Cahoon, Chris Ranowski, and Laura Johnston. Happy Wednesday. It is Wednesday, right? I lose track. <laughs> it's <Maybe>. Wednesday. <laughs> okay, Wednesday it is. Let's begin. Does Ohio's unemployment system have another glitch creating anxiety for the people who are living unemployment paycheck to unemployment paycheck? Jane Cahoon, this boggles my mind, a subtexter, one of the people that subscribes to my From the Editor free texting account, sent a note yesterday saying, I don't know if you heard, but they screwed up again. And when we (laughs) checked it out, it's true. They did screw up again. How could they possibly allow another mistake in this mistake-ridden system? Yeah, next time you hear a report like this, just believe it because it's undoubtedly <laughs> true, right? So uh, Ohioans receiving their unemployment benefits had their payments delayed over the weekend because of a coding error. This is according to the Ohio Department of Job and Family Services. So direct deposit payments from that system sent to financial institutions between Saturday and Monday were initially rejected because they didn't include the names of the recipients. So that was the problem. And they didn't, they said they didn't know exactly how many payments were affected by this error, but they've, they've corrected a lot of it. Like the larger banks have been able to process the payments by now because they've compared other information like routing numbers and account numbers. But, and then they're still working apparently with some of the smaller banks to, to get them to process these payments. But meanwhile, as you said, people living uh, check to check here uh, had to experience um, another delay. And they, they, they say, Hey, we don't want to minimize this problem because just, you know, one payment delayed is too many, but we don't want to alarm people. You know, the vast majority were, were processed as, as usual. So, um, I, the thing I don't get about this, I mean, you know, as a reminder, this system has been a disaster from day one because it was overloaded. The people on this call had difficulty getting their own claims processed. We heard from one person after another that it was bad. John Houston spent the first, ha- you know, half of the pandemic in the governor's briefings, you know, accepting blame and saying it would be fixed. So I just, I don't, I mean, things were working. How did they screw it up? I mean, if you if you don't do anything, the system continues apace. So they had to do something that messed yeah. it up. Well, I, I don't know. I might disagree with you that it was working because <laughs> judging from, you know, Rich Exner for his personal finance column called That's Rich uh, has has done several Q&As because this is such a hot topic um, about like those new $300 benefits and people are just flooding him with questions about this, that, or the other that they don't understand or they think is screwed up or, you know, they're being told they were overpaid. And even if it's the state's mistake, too bad, you know, stuff like that. So, you know, this system. Yeah, I I, I actually, yeah, I don't want to give the impression that it was working. I guess I just am surprised the language too. that, you know, we don't want to minimize it. We don't want to alarm people. These are people that are relying on this to live. They are people without jobs, without incomes. This is like the critical lifeline that has kept the community moving through this pandemic. And so it should have the highest priority to not get screwed up. So 
I, I think we should ask about this at the next governor's briefing to say, <laughs> how could you let this happen? And the governor will, of course, defer to John Houston, who will then give us lots of explanations yeah, start, and say, start his dance, right? The dance. That's exactly what he does. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Have having students in in-person schools caused a coronavirus surge in the weeks since classes restarted? You know, we, we talked on this podcast and I actually predicted that once the kids went back to schools, we would see a coronavirus surge. They've now been back for a few weeks, Jane Cahoon, and it does not appear from what Emily Bamforth is reporting that we're seeing the surge, that the schools and the precautions they took are working. Right. And I mean, we we don't have like all of the I mean, a lot of them are still doing remote uh, learning. So we, we are not seeing widespread outbreaks, at least not yet. But keep in mind, we'll know more on Thursday when we get the weekly coronavirus numbers from the K to 12 schools. But, you know, a lot of them are doing remote learning. But Emily did touch base with some of the districts that have already done like a hybrid uh, approach with in-person and remote learning and found, you know, they were generally pretty happy with the results, even, even though there have been some hiccups. I mean, it has been a real challenge because of all of these precautions. You know, I, I thought it was funny. One superintendent compared it to building an airplane while you're flying it. And and uh, supposedly teachers are saying they, they feel like it's their first year all over again. But, you know, they're doing all sorts of things like you know, having students with last names from A to L come to school the first two days of the week and then M to Z the last two days of the week. Um, they've changed traffic flow. They they try to have more drop-offs so kid, there aren't a bunch of kids on buses. They, they're eating lunch um, in their classrooms, not in a cafeteria, you know, all kinds of things. And it's funny because some of the problems that they're having are, are more with the online uh, teaching because of, of technical glitches. So, um, as I said, the report was generally pretty good. I, I was impressed with the Brexville Broadview Heights example and Emily's story with all that they'd done and they'd had one case since they started. It was a staff member. Uh, that's a pretty good record. I, whether it can be maintained, you know, as winter starts and heating systems start up, um, it's not clear, but it's a good sign that so far, we have not seen the surge, and a lot of the districts that have been waiting to see that are, are going to start going back now. I know uh, Solon will be back within a week and a half. The Cleveland schools are going to start talking in a few weeks about their return. Um, you know, it'll, again, we'll have to see what happens in the thick of winter when <laughs> noses are running and, and everything changes. But for now, it's good news. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What are the topics for the presidential debate in Cleveland next week? Chris Warnowski, they're boring. Our readers, our audience had a lot better ideas than what is coming from Chris Wallace. But what what are the topics he plans to ask as he moderates the first presidential debate in Cleveland on Tuesday? Yeah. So yesterday, Wallace released the list of, of things that they'll be talking about during the 90 minute forum that is broken up into six 15-minute segments. The topics include uh, the Trump and Biden records, the Supreme Court, the COVID-19 coronavirus, the economy, the integrity of the elections, and race and violence in the cities, which if your Twitter looked like mine yesterday, uh, people were very upset about the race and violence in the cities topic. 
because they, they're saying like connecting the idea of race and violence together is kind of offensive. So yeah. Well, that's completely understandable, right? right? I mean, that that, that, very, what yeah. is Chris Wallace thinking? It's, you know, in our, you know, I sent a note out on the text messaging account yesterday and got an overwhelming response, probably double what I normally get. And the common themes there were, climate change. I mean, that was big. Yeah. People, people basic saying, if we don't deal with climate change, well, none of these other topics matter. Yeah, I don't think, a, I don't think an anchor from a science denying <laughs> network is going to talk about <laughs> climate change. God, we're not going to scare our grandparents about the weather. Okay. So let's just, Fox News will not be asking about that. <laughs> and then the other thing that was interesting, because it came up from a number of people, is they wanted questions about honesty, integrity, and transparency in elected leaders. Not a topic that has come up in previous elections, but because of what's going on in this country, there were, there were a number of people saying, look, I want to hear these guys talk about or make commitments to being honest, being truthful, and having integrity. Of course, we're not going to get that, but I I think we would have been much better off if the people of Northeast Ohio were picking the topics instead of Chris Wallace. Well, I maybe having two politicians in a building in Cleveland talking about honesty and integrity might get the building struck by lightning or something. <laughs> I, just, I don't know. I mean, yeah, those are those are good ideas, but you know, I think things like the coronavirus, the Supreme Court. Uh, you know, I mean, the Supreme Court, which has just been completely absent from people's minds until a week ago, you know, it, it's it's something that hasn't really been in the forefront of a lot of discussions this election. You know, it's been the virus. It's been the economy. And everybody kind of took their eye off the ball when it comes to the courts, which I think is I think is a, a very, very important issue that's going to determine a lot of things, including maybe this election. So, you know, I I'm eager to hear what they have to say about this. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why is Ohio Governor Mike DeWine worried about how you heat your house or business? Larry Johnston, the governor's briefings have been a long series of civics lessons, but but yesterday broke new ground with a lesson on HVAC repair. Kind of threw me. Uh, so what what was the point of all that? Well, it's not like he was telling you like how to fix your air conditioner. The whole point of it is that winter is coming. And I kept seeing it in caps, like like a TV preview for Game of Thrones, like, you know, with the scary music behind it, um, because we have largely existed in this pandemic in warm weather months. I mean, the very beginning of the shutdown, no one was going anywhere and it wasn't warm. But the way we've been social and got exercise has been outside. And we've heard over and over again that being outdoors is safer. There's just obviously the entire atmosphere to soak up any virus particles. So if you're going to see people, it's better to do it outside. Now it's going to get colder. The holidays are coming. People are not necessarily going to go hold back, hold back up in their houses. So if they're going to be with other people at places like schools and offices, we better have HVAC systems that work and can exchange some fresh air. So you're not just circulating air with the virus particles in it. You want to maximize airflow and filtration within spaces. So he actually, they, they did have an expert on this. And Mike DeWine, as you know, in past uh, briefings, kind of interviews these people. So it, we're going through the process with him. He's not pretending to be an expert. But he talked about these three big differences 
for makeup air, which is the amount of air coming in from the outside, the air exchange rate, which is how much air circulates between rooms, and then air filtration, which is how effectively filters remove air particles. This all applies, of course, to forced air heat for people like me and Jane who have steam or hot water. It's not the same because you're not circulating air through the system. Uh, it, ju- it just was an odd one uh, and, and, you know, on point because because people are turning on their heating systems. It's getting cooler earlier than I think uh, was suspected. And so this was all advice about how to um, how to try and keep things safe. So, so did you, did you call your HVAC repair person? No, I didn't. I have uh, radiators too, so I don't have forced air, but, um, it does make me think like, you know, should we be cracking windows all winter long? Not when you're in your own house, but I did think that it was really interesting that the idea of that CDC study came out because the expert was kind of like, I don't know what they're thinking, taking that down. He made it pretty clear that he believes this is spreading, not just through those big droplets that, you know, fall within six feet, but that this is circulated in the air as an aerosol. So it's just something we all need to think about. Yeah. What you're talking about is the CDC came out Friday with a report that said the virus spreads through aerosol, the much finer mist that can hang in the air for a long time and go further than six feet mm-hmm. and then took it down, which raised all sorts of well, suspicions and, about the politics of the CDC. And and, and I don't know if you know this. It, it, this is Chris Warnowski. Yeah, this is Chris Warnowski. Going back to what you were talking about in the difference between like steam heat, steam heat in homes and in, in apartments is is actually a result of the 1918 pandemic you know the modern design get out of town right, really right. <laughs> there, there was a there was a prevalent notion that steam heat would help battle infections that steam heated buildings are well, the it's, that humi- it's that humidity yeah. like you know we've written about that too Damn, i did not know yeah. that chris Uber, that's fascinating Uber city lab did a, a really interesting story about how fighting infectious disease has actually played a pretty significant role in how we still design our homes and apartments so it, it, it's an interesting thing i think it's something that we should explore a little a little further as well well, my house was built in 1925, so the timing of that would be exactly right. That's a, that, I, I, w- I would like to know more about that. We will explore it. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. When might Cleveland school students go back to the classroom? Jane Cahoon, we've talked about this in previous podcast segments, but because there are so many kids in the Cleveland schools and because a lot of them have challenges when it comes to broadband and things, Getting them back to the classroom is pretty critical to their education. Eric Gordon, the school CEO, gave a state of the school speech and gave an indication of when that might happen. What did he say? Yeah, he revealed that they're going to start looking at this in like week five or six of remote learning. Right now, they're in their third week of this. He did say they're going to prioritize safety and that three things are going to govern this decision. One is the state's coronavirus, you know, color-coded alert system and and whether there's still a lot of community spread in Cleveland. You know, as we know, Cleveland, uh, Cuyahoga County used to be in the red and they've been orange for a while. And Rich Exner told me yesterday he thinks that they're going to remain orange when when the new map comes out on on Thursday. Uh, The second thing is family sentiment. They want to survey families again about whether or not, you know, parents and caregivers feel comfortable sending children back. And then the third thing is how learning is working and and whether a hybrid learning approach may make sense for families and teachers. One thing to keep in mind is is we know that 
minorities are disproportionately affected by the coronavirus and the majority of the student population in Cleveland is black or Hispanic. So that's going to weigh heavily in this decision. Um, Another thing that I thought was interesting in his address was that he, he said, you know, maybe schools really shouldn't return to normal after the pandemic. He thinks this crisis is a pivotal moment that that actually presents an opportunity for a reset and to examine inequities in the system. And, and it's an opportunity to make learning more individualized and to get away from these strict time frames and, and to support kids to complete their learning, even, even if that takes extra time. Yeah. You know, we've talked about this before that, that this is this experiment that we're doing does offer lots of lessons. I was talking to our columnist Layla Tassi yesterday. She's got a, a column coming out about some shenanigans by one district with respect to uh, remote learning. It's trying to restrict, if kids stay home sick, they're basically saying they should not be using the remote portal, even though in that district, the remote portal is identical to what's going on in the classroom. And and it's, why not? I mean, you know, I get that you don't want to ask teachers to do extra work for kids who are sick or kids who are going on vacation. But if we have this remote learning system, why not making it available anytime a kid is away from the classroom? Um, and it's a great debate. She'll have that, that column coming up shortly. And Gordon, I think, has done more thinking about this than anybody because of the nature of the students in Cleveland. Uh, and so it's, it's actually heartening to hear him thinking, we're learning things here that can improve the education of our students. We need to capitalize on those going forward, no matter what happens. So good stuff. Uh, We'll have to keep paying attention to where he goes. He's one of the more innovative thinkers. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How long do voting rights advocates say it might take some people to deliver their ballots to the single drop-off box in Cuyahoga County? Chris Ranowski, this is the crux of this debate. This is this is really what divides the counties in Cuyahoga County with a million plus people. It's a much more arduous task. What are the the people trying to get more drop boxes put around the county arguing here? Yeah. So yesterday there or, uh, earlier this week, I guess there was a filing that uh, by some voting rights groups that are um, opposed to this idea of keeping a single drop box for absentee ballots. And they they have basically said, like, for some Cleveland residents, it would take uh, 90 minutes in travel time to cast an absentee ballot at the county's only drop box at the uh, Board of Elections office down in downtown Cleveland. And. Um, and, and we've talked about this before, you know, one of the one of the the biggest concerns about, you know, sticking with this single Dropbox idea that LaRose thinks is adequate is that it does sort of disproportionately affect, you know, low income residents who don't have access to cars or, you know, have to rely on on unreliable public transportation to get them downtown. You know, and, and so there's actually a hearing today. John Coniglia is is logging on to uh, listen to it today. I think there's going to be a, a full day of arguments on on this, and 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 whether or not we get a decision today remains to be seen. Yeah, it's a bit, but that's what it comes down to. It's a much much harder thing to do here than it is in Licking County. Yeah, 
where you have well, a much smaller population. Well, so it's you could argue that my living in Cuyahoga County penalizes me and makes voting harder. Well, and you know, I mean, our, our I mean, our county is what like it's like four hundred and twenty four hundred and fifty seven square miles, and the city alone is like seventy eight square miles, and anybody. You know, anybody who has to drive from the east side to the west side will tell you like it's, you know, even if you have a car, it takes a long time. So, you know, if you have a job, if, if you know, I, I mean, I get it. You can drop, you know, you can drop it off on the weekends when you're not working. But, you know, it, it's it's still, you know, even if you have a car, it's still a bit of a hike to get downtown. And if, you know, if you're taking care of kids, teaching your kids, working, you know, it's 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 a tough thing to do to peel away and to, to drive all the way into the city for some people. So, you know, it's 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 this affects everybody. But sadly, it's one of those things where it obviously is affecting people who, you know, are are historically disenfranchised from voting. And even though Frank LaRose has said that if the law says he could provide more boxes, I think it's pretty clear based on his actions so far that no matter what Judge Polster does, if they call for more, he will appeal it. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why does Cleveland Mayor Frank Jackson say his overhaul of the city health department is more than an overhaul of the city health department? Laura Johnston, we were baffled by the fact that he tore apart his health department in the middle of the pandemic, the biggest thing to happen to the city health department in 100 years. But as often can happen with this mayor, uh, it takes a few days to to get the message of what it's about. But now in listening to what he's aiming for, this really wasn't about the health department so much as some much bigger issues. What did he explain in his interview with our reporter Bob Higgs yesterday? Yeah, there is a bigger theme here. He's using this uh, opportunity to recast the health department to focus on underlying health issues that are caused by racism and can lead to crime. And he wants the department to work with the city's 22 recreation centers which Jackson envisions becoming like resource centers where families and children can get connected to social and health services. So Jackson told Bob Higgs that this is not a traditional focus. focus. He realizes that, but he says governing requires doing something, and this is doing something. He said this might have happened even if the department hadn't been totally problematic. But I want to point out there was an investigation into this department. There were problems. Everybody seemed to be mistreated. There are two investigations, I think, going into individuals. So he's kind of using this carpe the chaos kind of moment. If he's going to do the overhaul anyway, let's refocus it on something that's really going to help the people of Cleveland. Yeah. The, the, the trouble is, again, the messaging. They just do terrible messaging at City Hall. So it leaves people for the better part of a week to go, what are you doing? But this is very much in keeping with with the mayor's repeated messaging of the beast. There's this this kind of entity, this overwhelming force that has people profiting at the expense of people in poverty and continuing multi-generation poverty. It's been a, a theme that he's been been driving for a couple of years now. And so now you hear this this health department reform is aimed at that, that, mm-hmm. that this is much more focused on getting at some of the root causes of public health issues that keep people in poverty, that, that drive racism. Uh, I'm, 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 I'm not sure we're hearing exactly how this overhaul attacks that, but at least we understand now why you would tear it apart in the middle of a pandemic 
just why couldn't they have explained this well, on the front end? Right. And it's not, I mean, the coronavirus is obviously not the only thing they're dealing with. While this is all happening, they're still dealing with immunizations, uh, lead screening, efforts to reduce infant mortality, healthy living. Um, they, You know, the city's been working on childhood obesity. I feel like all of these issues do work together with structural racism, which is something we've talked about a lot. And the city is really, and the city and the county are really trying to get to the root of. So it makes a whole lot of sense because all of that crime, um, where people live in their neighborhoods, racism, it all affects your health. So it, the fact that they're looking at it as a big picture is really promising. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Is Senator Rob Portman still defending his 100% about face on approving a Supreme Court justice this late in a president's term? And is he arguing that he is not a hypocrite to do so? Jen Cahoon, he's still talking. What's he saying? <laughs> yes, yes, he is, in fact, doubling down on his position. He had his weekly conference call with reporters on Tuesday. And, of course, he was asked about this. And he basically maintains that the situation has changed since 2016 when, when he advocated not doing this uh, during an election year. Uh, and he says that's because the presidency and the U.S. Senate are now controlled by the same political party. But it's interesting, you know, the after Justice Antonin Scalia died in 2016, you know, there were about nine months to spare on President Barack Obama's term. And at that time, Portman even published an op-ed in the Cincinnati Inquirer called Why Supreme Court Choice Should Wait. And, and interestingly, it cited a comment that that Joe Biden made years before when he was the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee that that urged putting off action on a Supreme Court nominee until after an upcoming election. And so, uh, you know, he he said, yes, the Senate has the exclusive right to decide whether to move forward. But, you know, because of what Joe Biden says, you know, we should we should wait. It's you know, it's it's been common practice for the Senate to stop acting on lifetime appointments during the last year of a presidential term. But in in Tuesday's call, he he just said, you know, this that that commentary was in the context of divided government. And yeah, he, although there was nothing in that commentary that mentioned that. And the, the problem he's got a problem here, and I don't think he knows it. We're hearing from people that are saying, "I've been a longtime supporter of this guy." This is the definition of hypocrisy. He, how can he justify this? Because it's not justifiable. You can't make the argument that it's okay now and it wasn't okay then. And to say that, well, we control the Senate, that, that's, that's almost worse. It's like, it's like, well, we could do whatever we want. And it also sets up, if the Democrats do retake the Senate, uh, you know, a, a very bloody period where the Democrats will say, the hell with you guys, Republicans. You you did not stand on our long term precedents. We're not either. Get out of our way. And they'll bulldoze all sorts of things right. through. Is- I'm shocked that Portman's going this route. I mean, he hasn't stood up to, to Trump during a lot of Trump's silliness, but but he's generally tried to say, I'm a man of integrity. How do you say that here? Chris Renowski. I you know, what's obvious for anybody who has more than like two brain cells to rub together is that this whole thing was just made up. I mean, this was not, you know, Mitt Romney's statement talked about precedent. And I don't know if Portman has gone down that route, but there really isn't much precedent for this. You know, this was what they did with Merrick Garland under Obama's last year was something they just an idea they pulled out of 
pretty much thin air. And, and so to say that there's some sort of reasonable way to excuse why they're doing this now is BS. I mean, it's, it's one of the most unprincipally dishonest things I think I've, I've, I've seen out of a lot of these people. And that's saying a lot. I mean, there's, I mean, mean, honestly, I mean, I'm saying that not as a joke. I mean, it's unfortunate, but you know, this is the power that they have. I mean, there's, I mean, what, what are the Democrats doing to stop it? And, and, and you look at it and you go, well, they're shrugging their shoulders and maybe talking about expanding the court, which honestly, I haven't heard much discussion of outside of mostly media speculation about whether that is even something that could even conceivably happen. So I don't know. Of course this happened. Like, of course this happened like right before the election, because it's, you know, it's, it's, you couldn't script this in a better way. I mean, it's just, it's, it's exhausting. And and it's, here you have a moment for somebody like Rob Portman to say like, you know, I'm going to be honest and I'm going to do the right thing. And instead they, they found a, a way to worm around it. And here we are. This, this is Laura right. Johnston. It does feel like the, you know, one of those crayon drawings, like Harold and the purple crayon, like I have to get from this point to this point, like what twisted logic can I draw a line <laughs> from one point to the other that I can yeah. say this makes sense. But, but I do think middle America has that sense of right and wrong. And the sense that I'm hearing from people is you can't, you can't do this. You can't do what you did four years ago and turn around and try to rationalize it. That's what they're doing, but I don't think it's working. And I think it's going to hurt them. Whereas I think they would have been in a much stronger position to say, we're going to stand on president and we're going to stand on integrity. We'll push it till next year. So vote for us so we can make the call. That would have made a difference. I mean, Ohio is a toss-up state. That would have gotten some Republican votes, and instead, I think it'll go the opposite way. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. I'm going to have to leave it there. We had two more questions to go through that are pretty good ones, but we will leave them for another day. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Jane. Thanks to everybody who listens to This Week in the CLE. We'll return tomorrow. Tomorrow.